we go. Welcome back to the Old Head Podcast. As usual, I am Steven, and I'm here to talk your ear off about some shit. But before I go any further, please like, comment, subscribe, share. Let your friends and family and co-workers all know about this podcast. And also send me an email at oldheadpodcast at gmail.com. All right. This week, I thought I would talk a little bit about what I feel is a very unique and special era of popular music. And that is the early 90s. And why is this so unique and special to me? Well, it's because in the early 90s, due to the success of underground slash alternative music, especially bands like Nirvana, major record labels became a little bit confused and unsure of themselves. The music that was becoming radio-friendly sounded nothing like the radio-friendly music of just a few years before. And because of this, major labels were going out and signing up all kinds of interesting, weird, and most importantly, really good bands that they normally would have completely ignored. And it was all an attempt to beat the other record label to finding the next big thing. And while there are plenty of really good bands, some of which became successful, that I could talk about, I'm going to focus on a few of the outliers or bands that either were kind of fringe or were perhaps a bit too ahead of their time to actually make it. And these are all artists that began in the early 90s, only released one album, and then kind of vanished into obscurity. And mind you, these are all bands that were signed to major record labels and had somewhat of a publicity push behind them at the time. But I'm willing to bet most of you don't remember them. So let's get started. Let's go back to the year 1991. Now, in that year, if I were to use the words rap and metal in the same sentence, you would probably think I was going to be referring to Bring the Noise by Anthrax and Public Enemy, right? Because they were the ones that made that whole thing happen, right? Not really. In 1991, there was a band signed to Interscope Records, and they put out an album that was a rap metal fusion album, and they were called The Hardcore. C-O-R-P-S. Get it? Their album was called Death Before Dishonor. And it's a pretty damn good album, in my opinion. Now, The Hardcore came from Nashville, Tennessee, and they were a six-piece band, which included two MCs, one DJ, a guitarist, a bassist, and a drummer. And the music was nothing more than some funky metal stuff with some traditional hip-hop vocals over it. And in hindsight, after living through the rap-rock explosion of the late 90s, this album actually sounds pretty legit. And not only that, it boasted production credits from one Jam Master J from Run DMC. Now, for those of you who, like me, watched Headbangers Ball every single Saturday night, 
you would probably remember the video for the song Hardcore that came out also in 1991. And you can find poor quality versions of this video up on YouTube. But for the most part, if you look up this band on the internet, you're not going to find very much. It seems like at the time the album had a little bit of a hype behind it, but it appears that everything kind of just fell off really quickly. And apparently the band in 1993 was just suddenly dropped by Interscope. And I'm assuming that they all just went, well, fuck this. And they all went their own separate ways. But they left behind an album that perhaps was a little too ahead of its time. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a pretty solid and fun album to listen to. Now, normally I would probably say, hey, go look this up on Apple Music or Spotify or something. Nope, it ain't there. But you should be able to find the album on YouTube somewhere. The album is Deaf Before Dishonor, and the band was The Hardcore. Okay, so let's move on to what, to me, is one of the most bizarre major label signings of the early 90s. Now, unlike The Hardcore, it's a little bit easier to locate information about this band, but yet they still remain kind of a mystery to me. That band is Life, Sex, and Death. LSD for short. Now, they were a band from Chicago, and if you just focused on the music, they were kind of a basic, heavy, hard rock band that wrote really energetic and catchy songs. And the bass player, guitar player, and drummer all looked like your average LA rocker guys. But what truly set them apart was their vocalist, who was known only as Stanley. And here's where the mystery of this band lies. Now, Stanley was supposedly a mentally unstable homeless man that the band happened to find, and it just so happened that he was able to sing in front of band. And this dude looked and acted the part. He was always wearing some sort of a dirty, messed up kind of suit. His hair was disheveled. He had an affectation where it looked like part of his face may have had some sort of palsy. I'm not really sure. And his vocals were, for lack of a better description, kind of like an old crooner decided he was going to front a rock band after he lost his marbles a little bit. Now, I'm of the opinion that Stanley was a very dedicated performance artist. And I say dedicated because from all accounts, when anyone would see him in public or before or after a show, he was always in character, acting like a weird, crazy homeless guy. Now, nothing about that screams major label record contract, does it? But believe it or not, there was a bidding war between major labels for this band. And in the end, Reprise Records put out their album, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Records, and they released the album The Silent Majority in 1992. And this album is a fucking blast. It is heavy and catchy. It's got big riffs and big choruses. It's like radio-friendly hard rock through a funhouse mirror. I remember seeing the video for the song Tank on Headbangers Ball when I was younger and thinking, what the fuck is this? 
And I'm sure the majority of the listening public thought the same thing, because apparently the album didn't do very well. Maybe the world just wasn't ready for a fun hard rock band fronted by a crazy homeless guy. But the good news is, in the case of this band, you can find their music videos and a lot of live performances on their own YouTube page, which is just Life, Sex, Death. So go check that out. It's hours of entertainment. Now, other than that, there's not really much information about what happened to this band. It just seems like they fizzled out within a few years. And I'm assuming it's because they lost the backing of their label when their album did not prove them to be the next big thing. But wouldn't it have been great if they were? I think so. But go see for yourself. Go check out their YouTube page or listen to their album, The Silent Majority, on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever. I suggest listening to the songs Tank and the catchiest song on the album, Fucking Shit Ass. Not kidding. That's the title. I love that song. Now, moving on. The last album I want to talk about is one that I've been really into since it came out, and I'm still singing its praises today. And that is an album that was released in 1994 called Stress from a band called Stompbox. Now, Stompbox were a band from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and their sound was a bit of a hodgepodge of metal and post-hardcore that included a lot of angular riffs, kind of like what Helmet was doing back then, but a bit more melodic. And at that time, I was very into Helmet and bands like that. And this album is so well produced, and the performances are so tight and spot on, and it lived in this kind of strange area of music where other people that I knew that were into post-hardcore kind of shit didn't like this band, and then people that were into more mainstream shit also didn't like this band. So as to be expected, the album didn't exactly blow up the way I had hoped it would. And maybe that was for the best, considering that, by all accounts, the band didn't really get along with the vocalist, and around the time they were thinking about kicking him out, the A&R person that had brought them in to Columbia Records all of a sudden left the company, leaving them with basically no support at their own label. And that's a story that seems to have happened numerous times around that era, where an A&R person would take a chance on a new band and bring it into a major label environment and then just fuck off and leave them left to their own devices. Now, if Stompbox had been super successful, I'm sure somebody else would have stepped in and said, hey, I'll take this over, but they weren't. And so they were just left high and dry and were eventually let out of their contract. And then they did, of course, kick the singer out, change their name, change their style of music. I don't give two shits about what they did after that because I've heard a little bit of it and no thank you. And consequently, that version of the band didn't go anywhere either. Now, while this is once again a band that is not found on Apple Music slash Spotify, you can find their tracks on YouTube, including the music video for the song No Woods. Now, that is a fucking great song. And it was the reason that I got into this band initially way back in 94. And a funny side note about that song, if you go listen to it right now, No Woods is the song. If you wait until the main riff kicks in at the beginning of the song, you're going to hear a conspicuous similarity to the main riff from a song called 
The Sickness by a band called Disturbed that came out six years later. Now, I'm not going to say Disturbed ripped them off. Yeah, I am. I'm sure somebody in the band heard the riff or remembered the riff and then wrote that fucking song, which is nowhere near as good as No Woods. Anyway, the album is called Stress, the band is called Stompbox, and they are yet another example of the amazing early 90s and the cool shit that I otherwise would probably have never heard if it hadn't had that brief major label backing to push it out in front of my hungry young rock and roll face. Because at that point, the stories of these three bands were not unique. It was happening all over the place. And as much as people like to shit on that era of music, specifically the roles that MTV and major labels had in what was being put out at that time, but to a kid who was around 14 years old at the time, which I was, I wouldn't have heard these bands any other way. I wouldn't have heard the Melvins for a long time if they hadn't been signed to a major and had a video on MTV. And another really important thing to point out is that the excitement that was in the air at that point in time, because there was so much activity happening with major labels scooping up young bands, it ended up inspiring young bands to really go out and go for it because there was a chance that something was going to happen. I mean, isn't making music all about somebody hearing that music and hopefully a lot of people hearing that music? Anyone who says otherwise is full of shit. I mean, I was one of those kids. I started my first band around 1995. And if I was a 16-year-old kid today, I don't think I would even bother. I feel like for the most part, Today, music is looked at more as something that you have on in the background or something that accompanies you doing something else. As much as modern technology and the internet allows me to do a podcast like this, it's also made music not as special and in turn, not as appreciated because back in the day, it wasn't just everywhere with every whoever putting whatever out all the time. And it's because of this, I think, that the overlooked music from an era that was huge is very special to me, especially when it's good music. Now, there's some shitty stuff out there that I just find interesting, but the great music that came out that was either ahead of its time or too weird or... Maybe it was just bad timing because it was overshadowed by all the other successful bands of the time. That's the music that I really appreciate because if you think about it, the people and the bands that made those albums, they put work into those things. There was passion and enthusiasm and raw young energy behind those albums. And it breaks my heart a little bit that so many of these albums are almost just completely forgotten. Obviously, I am one of those musicians who just didn't make it. So maybe this hits a little close to home. So before I get all emotional on you, I'm going to wrap this up. 
Go check out these albums however you can. Go look them up on Amazon or Discogs and snag yourself a copy. Because hopefully, eventually, that period of music is going to be rediscovered and all of a sudden be on the right side of history. And these smaller, next big things that could have been might start getting a little bit of love and respect for what they did. Who knows? Anyway, as usual, if you know of any obscure one-album bands from that time period that you want to throw out there, please leave them in the comments if you're listening to this on YouTube. Or send them to me at oldheadpodcast at gmail.com. I thank you again for listening. Keep fighting the good fight. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.